Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. Blockchain has recently been in the news for bad acts relating to cryptocurrency. Fraud indictments against the former FTX chief executive, indictments against the four founders of Forsage for their alleged roles in a Ponzi scheme, and arrests in Ohio relating to Bitcoin ATMs used to scam elderly people. But as a whole, blockchain technology, its various applications outside of the context of crypto, and government regulations in the space are not well understood. So to help us get a handle on everything related to blockchain, I'm pleased to welcome Usman Sheikh to the show. Usman is a transactional partner in Baker McKenzie's Toronto office. He's chair of the firm's blockchain and fintech practice, and is also a member of the firm's litigation and government enforcement practice group. Usman regularly advises clients on fintech, blockchain, and digital asset matters, both on corporate and litigation matters. He has provided legal counsel on cutting-edge token sales, NFTs, crypto asset trading platforms, blockchain fintech mergers and acquisitions, as well as cybersecurity breaches. So welcome to the show, Usman. Thanks for having me, Dave. Well, let's get let's get to the basics of blockchain because I think a lot of people hear about blockchain and crypto and everything associated with it, but don't really understand what it is. So, can you give us a short primer on what blockchain is? To answer your question, let me perhaps, if I may, just answer why blockchain technology is important and what it is. Despite some of the recent negative headlines, some of which you've just mentioned a moment ago, Dave, blockchain technology. That is, the technology itself is said by many to be one of the most revolutionary or perhaps evolutionary technologies to have been invented since the days of the internet. At its core, blockchain technology is really a ledger. It's a digital ledger of transactions or other things. According to one of the go-to definitions that I go, go to, which was established by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, it's a Digital ledger that is tamper evident and tamper resistant, meaning that tampering is easy to detect and hard to do. And the ledger is implemented in a distributed fashion, meaning without a central repository and usually without a central authority, meaning a bank or a government uh, controlling that ledger. So your your listeners may be scratching their heads and wondering, well, what's all the fuss about regarding a ledger of all things? You really have to see how important a ledger is in our lives. So let's say you and I, Dave, wanted to do a simple banking transaction. If I wanted to send to you $50, I would go to my bank, I would ask them to transfer $50 to you, my bank would look at my ledger, they would see that I have $50 to give, they would reach out to a correspondent bank, the correspondent bank would then reach out to your bank, and everyone would effectively update their ledgers to reflect that I'm $50 poorer and you're $50 richer. That same necessity of a ledger is all throughout our daily lives. It could be in stock transactions when I want to send 50 shares of IBM to a counterparty, let's say yourself, 
It could be in a real estate transaction. And these ledgers are all maintained by centralized third-party intermediaries. And in fact, if you go down Wall Street or if you go down Bay Street here in Toronto and you sort of point out your finger and as you're walking down the street, a lot of the institutions that you'll be pointing at are intermediaries. So one of the key revolutionary developments with blockchain it is, it is that it has really created somehow in a way that I'm not going to technologically explain here on this on this podcast just at this time, where you and I can transact directly without having to go through one of those trusted third-party intermediaries and have that ledger maintained by them. Trust is effectively guaranteed not by those trusted single-party third-party intermediaries. Trust is secured through mathematics and cryptographic proof. There's now a whole industry that has surrounded itself around these blockchain protocols or blockchain blockchains themselves, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or others, that includes crypto exchanges, crypto wallets, crypto funds, and others. And I think we'll be discussing some of that uh, throughout this podcast. Absolutely. And and so a couple of questions for you kind of as follow-up. Number one, uh, you talked about these, these ledgers where do the ledgers reside? And I guess it probably depends on the applications of the technology. Yeah, I mean, there's different blockchains. So Bitcoin is one, Ethereum is another, and each will have its own master ledger. Those master ledgers are actually not held, as I was mentioning earlier, by a central third party, similar to a way that your bank ledger is held by TD Bank or by some other bank. These ledgers, the master copy is in fact effectively distributed to multiple, multiple parties throughout the world. And what blockchain technology, through a, a, a really revolutionary paper created by this sort of mysterious individual, or whether it's a he or she or a group of individuals, Satoshi Nakamoto, came up with a consensus validation mechanism. In other words, a method to update those ledgers without there being one of those centralized parties doing so in a manner that the transactions that are being updated on these ledgers is still secure, valid, and is efficiently and quickly done. So I could send $60 to you if you were here in Toronto as quickly as I could send $60 worth of Bitcoin to you in the same amount of time if you were in Japan. And that would all be without going through one of those trusted third-party intermediaries. Got it. And I guess... There seems to be a lot of like mystery surrounding uh, these technologies, especially crypto, in terms of you know, it's it's a um, it's a technology that's hard to understand. But I guess so is the internet generally. And just as folks have come to sell and buy things on the internet, people are going to do things using uh, blockchain technology. It's just a matter of us, I guess, getting used to it, despite the fact that not a lot of us have a you know hands-on understanding of what blockchain is. Yeah, I mean, many people don't know how the underlying workings of the internet work, and many people similarly don't know, at least the lay individuals, in terms of how the underlying technology works for blockchain whether it's proof of work, for example, as a consensus validation mechanism or proof of stake. The underlying technology, though, with respect to blockchain, what I can say is this, and again, I'm not a technologist, but the technology, nothing was technologically per se invented through the invention of 
Bitcoin. A lot of the existing things, uh, technological aspects, were previously invented, whether it's uh, cryptography that is used in our everyday systems protecting our emails, whether it's to operate the internet. The underlying technology, from a technological perspective, again, this is on the basis of many who are in the industry that uh, convey this to me, is nothing new. And so it's really how this technology was put together to sort of achieve what I was referring to earlier. Got it. So let's talk about a couple of the uh, practical applications of blockchain technology. I think everyone has heard of Bitcoin, but what are some of the other practical applications of the technology? Yeah, the very first use case, the first application of blockchain was really in the payment space with Bitcoin, uh, as you were mentioning. And so if you look at the Satoshi Nakamoto uh, white paper, the abstract, the very first paragraph on the top page of the very first page says that his, her, or their mission was really to come up with a peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash that would allow us to transact directly without having to go through a financial institution. But there are now many, many other applications and areas that have developed. Blockchain is currently being used to disrupt all other aspects of financial services. You and your listeners may have heard of something called DeFi or decentralized finance, which really takes Satoshi Nakamoto's vision beyond just simply payments into disrupting many, many other areas of financial services. So we have parties that we're working with that have created DeFi projects that are looking to replicate many financial products and services that we use in our daily lives, whether it's bank accounts, lending products, exchanges, ETFs, that are all fully or largely decentralized, meaning that there's no centralized trusted party like a bank or a broker dealer or someone else behind them. We've also seen projects in the real estate space where many countries and others are trying to come up with a blockchain solution to record land title transfers. And this is very key in many jurisdictions. If you can't have certainty over ownership of title on your own land, how does one mortgage that property? How does one do many other things, including in terms of conveying that property, if you cannot do that. So many jurisdictions around the world are looking into that. Blockchain is also being used as a, in terms of applications in the election or corporate voting space, using tokens that are secured by blockchain to record votes in a corporate voting setting to make sure that shareholder votes are not, are recorded, that should be recorded, or to prevent against over-voting, where there are more votes effectively cast than are supposed to be uh, voted in a circumstance like that, or even in democratic elections. So this is really being used as a tool to enhance shareholder democracy and democratic elections as well. We have another uh, circumstance, without sort of going on endlessly on this point, where we're actually looking at blockchain applications in the electricity space, trying to bring blockchain to the grid using it to help manage energy flows on the grid, as well as to allow individuals who are, let's say, what are called prosumers, individuals, in other words, that are not only consuming electricity, but also generating electricity through solar panels or other devices to allow them to buy and sell that excess energy through this platform as well. So there's many, many different applications I can go on, supply chain, projects, for example, Walmart's lettuce tracking, supply chain, blockchain, and many, many others that we're seeing in this area. 
it's interesting. Are there any applications that you can think of that lawyers uh, would be using? I, I mean, one that comes to mind is, you know, of course, accepting, you know, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies as payment from clients, but any other applications for attorneys? Well, lawyers have been accepting crypto for payment for many years now, and that includes smaller firms to larger firms. And some law firms will do that by accepting the crypto itself in their own crypto wallet, but then also using services to convert the crypto immediately into fiat so as to not take on the volatility. But in terms of other projects that we've been seeing, there's many. I mean, we were working on a project where you can effectively have contracts written in smart contracts and fully or largely in code. So imagine this, if you and I entered into a loan agreement where I agreed to give you a hundred bucks and in return get $1 worth of interest every month, well, we can operationalize those terms through smart contracts supported by a blockchain such that the contract effectively would live or die on the blockchain. So we would create it and through an API, the API would access the $100 from my account, it would give it to you. And automatically every single month, a dollar from your account through an API would be coming to my account until the termination of the agreement itself. And so many projects like that and others are being worked on at this time. Interesting. I can see uh, a very practical example might be a settlement agreement where you have a contract and then money comes automatically into uh, an account. That's a really interesting um, application of that technology. Exactly. And there's many others in the court, in the context of corporate tr deals or transactions where money is held in escrow. That's another application. There's many, many others that are being looked at in this area. Great. So let's talk about the regulation of blockchain. I, I, it sounds like the whole point is that there may be no regulation of this, um, but I know that governments are really interested, especially in uh, regulating cryptocurrency, for example. How is blockchain regulated? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. There is not one main regulator for blockchain, like the Blockchain Regulatory Organization of Canada. What I call blockchain is really a horizontal technology that affects many vertical areas of law and many vertical industries. So the regulator, the applicable regulator and the regulations that may apply will vary per project depending on the nature of the project. And as lawyers, what we do is we usually look at the business as a whole for example, the nature of the blockchain protocol, its tokens, and we also look at what industry laws and regulations are being impacted. So let me just give you a few examples. If I'm looking or if a project is looking to issue a token or develop a crypto exchange or to launch a crypto fund, definitely an area that would be considered is securities regulations. And there would be interactions. And in the early days, we used to do this all the time. We would what we call dialogue with our securities regulators because of a lot of, I should say a lot of these projects would raise very novel issues that that dialogue with the regulators was very, very critical to understand how this new technology would interact with our laws that were created many, many years ago and have not changed for decades in some instances. So for the token in that circumstance, we would look at how would it be legally characterized? Would it be considered a security. In terms of the crypto exchange, we would see, is it engaging exchange laws? Like, have we effectively created a marketplace such that it should be regulated in the same manner as the NYSE, the New York Stock Exchange, or the 
Toronto Stock Exchange. In terms of crypto funds, have we created a fund that needs to be adherent to the securities regulations of a jurisdiction? So all to say that from a project-by-project perspective, we look at the nature of the project, we look at the industry in which it's in. I would say just a few other areas for your audience to, to know that commonly come up in terms of regulators that we interact with and regulations one big one is AML. In Canada, uh, to the extent that an individual is engaging in the business of what's called dealing in virtual currencies, our money laundering laws may very well apply to that. And so we have often dialogued with our AML regulators. In Canada, it's called FinTrack. In the US, you have FinCEN to look at obtaining interpretive or policy guidance on, once again, how this novel area is being impacted by those laws. Like, for example, a non-custodial crypto wallet, is it engaging anti-money laundering laws under the existing statutes and regulations? Another set of regulators that we really interact with quite frequently are tax regulators in terms of how to tax the crypto assets in this area. We also have some projects that may raise deposit-taking issues, in which case we're interacting with and dealing with banking regulators and banking regulations. So there's quite a number of areas. It's hard to say, but one thing that you had mentioned is, is that some take the view that no regulation applies. And I think what our regulators would say is not so fast. I mean, our regulations are timeless. To the extent that your project is engaging securities laws, you need to comply. It's not like the area is not, is not regulated or, or is unregulated. It's an area where the laws exist and there needs to be adherence. Right. And it sounds like as someone who practices in this area that you're consulting with folks in other areas of the law, for example. So if if you have a transaction uh, dealing with tax issues, you're probably dealing with a tax partner um, at your firm, for example. Exactly. It's a very, very multi-jurisdictional, multi-practice area. So not only do I deal with I mean, on last count, I think we have about 180 here at Baker throughout our blockchain group around the world who practice in this space. And that includes securities litigators like myself. It includes IP lawyers, it includes tax lawyers, it includes uh, transactional lawyers. And then another thing that is important to note is, is that many projects believe that they just have to consider their project from Let's say the project is based in the United States from a U.S. legal perspective, but to the extent that there is a nexus to another jurisdiction, for example, they are using that token to raise capital in another jurisdiction like Canada or Switzerland or somewhere else, there does need to be a consideration of the laws of that local jurisdiction, which is why, in part, our group is as large as it is. We have to dialogue with our colleagues in Japan, in China, Switzerland, England, and many other jurisdictions around the world for many of these projects. I think you mentioned you were a securities attorney. Is that kind of how you got your start? I, th- I think people would be interested in, you know, how you got into the area of blockchain and cryptocurrency as one of your practice areas. Yeah, I, I actually got into this area about seven or eight years ago. I'm in Toronto. Ethereum was founded just two streets away from where I am, and I represent some of the co-founders of Ethereum. And 
I actually was at a conference about seven or eight years ago and bumped into a chap by the name of Vitalik Buterin, who was one of the co-founders of it. And just the way he talked and the way that he was referring to this technology caused me to sort of go down the rabbit hole. And so as is very common with many who got into this area at a very early stage, you sort of lock yourself in a room for a weekend and you try to read as much as you can. And I developed a somewhat unhealthy obsession with the topic and lo and behold, developed a a huge practice or practice, I should say, in the area uh, with many colleagues around the world. But yes, I used to be a actually a prosecutor with our Ontario Securities Commission, which is our largest capital markets regulator in Canada. And I could see that there were a lot of issues heading that way. And so in their very early days, I was very much trying to advise parties to be mindful of securities laws in particular, because we could see the enforcement action on the horizon. And that that sort of prophetic view uh, bore out because we're seeing a significant amount of litigation in securities laws in particular and enforcement. Got it. And you talked about uh, litigation, hot topics and litigation and that sort of thing. What are the litigation trends uh, involving uh, blockchain currently? There's a lot. If there's one uptick that we've seen in the last quarter or last two quarters, I should say, is, is that although deals have lessened in this space, the litigation has exponentially increased. And so we are seeing the litigation all over the area. But some of the key battlegrounds, I would say, if I were to step back and look at this from a 10,000 foot level, one is on the legal characterization of the tokens. There's huge battles still in this area to this day. And this battle has been going on for quite a number of years. Is Bitcoin a security? Is it a commodity? Is it money? Is it property? Is it some of the above? Is it all of the above? There's, And, and I should say that that's a very fundamental question. If you don't know what the nature of the asset is, how do you custody it? How do you transact in it? Are there resale restrictions that apply to it if it's a securities? How do you do many, many other basic things with the asset if you do not know what you are dealing with? And so there's several major battles that are being watched closely right now, particularly with securities regulators and tax authorities, which will require a lot of changes to the industry depending on the outcome of those battles. Another one is I should say, in relation to various products or services, uh, there's, again, very big battles in terms of these very novel products, very novel services, and whether they're securities. We've seen some recent enforcement action in terms of crypto lending products. So if you were to lend your crypto to an organization and were to receive some type of return on the basis of that, is that a security? There's also staking as a service that is a new type of service that is being offered and regulators recently took the position in one case that a security product was being offered and that there were violations of U.S. federal securities laws on that front. Another hot topic is uh, cybersecurity. We've been seeing massive, massive cybersecurity breaches in the crypto space and that involves what we call crypto exchanges and also bridges between different blockchains. We're seeing a lot of crypto fraud litigation. So one matter that you may and your audience may have heard of is the FTX matter. And there's been recent DOJ SEC prosecutions against some of the principles behind that organization. And then there's 
Money laundering is another big area that has been the focus in this case, or in this industry, I should say. There was a number of prosecutions by the Department of Justice, including one involving an exchange where individuals stole about $3.6 billion from that exchange. And then there's a lot of novel topics as well. I mean, there were some recent cases on NFTs and whether an NFT creator who designed an NFT based on a luxury brand was violating trademark. There's cases that we're going to see this year. And if I had one prediction, one big area of litigation that's going to, that we're going to be seeing this year is whether NFTs are securities. And then I would just say one other, because it's a quite interesting matter and quite novel, is in relation to what we call DAOs, or Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. These are effectively entities, let's put it that way, that are operating almost like businesses, but purely based on code, with very little humanoid activity behind them, per se, beyond its creation. How do you sue these entities? What legally are these entities? Are they partnerships? Are they unincorporated associations? Are they something else? Who is liable when these entities violate laws? These are critical issues that are coming up as matters of first impression in the courts. Well, that's that's a great list. Just as as I'm sitting here, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are are listening to this, thinking as a very complex topic, very interested in getting into the space as you know part of a, the future and trends in the law and litigation. So, if litigators wanted to learn more, become competent on these issues concerning you know blockchain and emerging cases, wh- where would you point them to go in terms of sources they should be referring to, places they should be reading, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, there's a few good areas. One is is that there's a few very good courses, including some that are available online, and your uh, audience is free to type into Google or whatever their device may be. One that is put on by Chair SEC Chair Gary Gensler when he was a professor teaching on blockchain at MIT. I also teach at the University of Toronto Faculty Faculty of Law on Blockchain, and uh, we have many many students part of that course. The audience members can also type into Google and just write in blockchain key books and a whole list of terrific uh, thought leadership will be available there. Some key books that I recommend individuals to read are books like The Blockchain Revolution or The Bitcoin Standard. I'm going to be writing a book this coming year on the law of blockchain technology that should be released this year or next. A lot of people will also subscribe to leading blockchain news organizations like Coindesk or Cointelegraph. Many people who want to learn more in this area will also attend some of the key conferences like Consensus, which occurs every year in Austin, which is one of the largest blockchain conferences in the world. There's also, again, if you wanted to type into Google and look up who are the key Twitter, blockchain, LinkedIn, and Telegram groups, those lists are also readily available. Another good thing to do is often just to reach out to lawyers in this space. It's a offensively collegial bunch, and they're always willing to help and to share information. That includes myself, if anybody wants to reach out and get a list of good reading material and others, or even the syllabus that I offer at my course, which is pretty extensive in terms of readings in this area. I'm happy to, I'm happy to share that. Perfect. Well, we are reaching the end of our time together. Um, and what is the best way if folks wanted to reach out to you? Well, my profile is available on the Baker McKenzie website. They can just find my email address there and send me a note. 
Perfect. Well, Usman Sheikh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really, uh, really appreciate all of the food for thought that you brought to this podcast today. Thanks a lot, Dave. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. I'm pleased to welcome back Latasha Ellis to the show. Latasha is a litigator in the Washington, D.C. office of Hunt and Andrews Kurth, focusing on insurance coverage cases. Welcome back to the show, Latasha. Hi, Dave. It's great to be back. Well, I understand you're going to be talking about communicating with clients today. So what's your quick tip? Yes. So today's quick tip is not just for litigators, but I actually think it's for any attorney communicating with clients. And whether your client is at a corporation or you're representing an individual in a dog bite case, or even if it's your supervising attorney, communicating well with clients is a foundational skill, not just for litigators, but I think for all lawyers. Client communication is a crucial aspect of your practice because it really can help you build your business. It can help you enhance your reputation, you know, help you stand out to your clients. It also protects you and your client. It protects you from any ethics violations or malpractice claims, and it protects the client from making decisions based on a lack of information from you. So communicating with clients is super important. I have personally been practicing law for about nine years, but I've had the privilege of working with some really amazing attorneys. And one attorney in particular is the head of our group at Hunton. His name is Sid Ahmed, and he is an amazing communicator with not just clients, but also the tribunal. So not long ago, I picked his brain for some tips about communicating what was his secret sauce, um, and I thought that it would be great to share with our listeners. So... The first tip is knowing your audience. And let me explain. When I say know your audience, that means understanding the scope of what your client wants. You know, does your client want a back of the napkin gut check versus a formal report to be shared with the board? And this is important. And knowing which question is really being asked is critical because it helps you determine, you know, can we do the thing? If we can do the thing, what are the risks? And if we are going to do the thing, then how can we best manage the risk? So knowing your audience is super important. Another huge part of knowing your audience is identifying options and making or recommending a decision or next steps. I think that as lawyers, we are really good at providing clients with options um, and detailing the pros and the cons. We will say, you know, on one hand, there's this, and on the other hand, you know, there's these other risks. But at some point, a decision has to be made. Your client is going to make a decision. And so why not add value to that client relationship by contributing to that critical decision and not just doing the preliminary legwork. Another part of knowing your audience is giving the client what they want with caveats or limitations instead of not giving the client they want with caveats and limitations. An example of this is I think that when lawyers are asked about the odds of a certain thing happening, maybe the likelihood of success, I get asked that all the time by clients. And I'm always very cringy and don't want to answer that question. And maybe my reluctance in giving a specific percentage is because the degree of confidence and predictability is low. But, you know, instead of saying that it's hard for me to 
determine or predict the probability of success, for example, you know, maybe I should just give a number and then explain to the client why the prediction, that number is a lot less certain than what the number suggests, or maybe the prediction is a lot more certain than the number suggests and I'm just being conservative. So, you know, of course that is subject to some real world dynamics and potential limitations, but the point really is you know, adding value to the clients and knowing your audience and the value that they want you or need you to add. The second tip is just being easy to work with, being user-friendly to your clients, being concise, you know, less is more. When I clerked, my judge would always say that brevity is key. And, you know, as practicing lawyers, whether you're working with someone who's reporting to the general counsel or even in some instances, again, a supervising attorney, they typically need to take your recommendations to the GC or CEO or to the actual client and distill that into a brief email or maybe a PowerPoint slide. So again, adding value, being easy to work with by making their job easier and being concise is important. Another thing with being user-friendly, so to speak, is presenting the bottom line up front so that the client can make a better sense of the rest of the communication instead of trying to tie things together at the end when that could result in more work, more time. Also communicating specific action items and timing so that they will not be glossed over. You know, the first sentence of an email, phone call, or just communication to a client should usually almost always be some version of, we need to decide X by a certain date. And as explained below, we recommend Z. So also understanding, and this is somewhat implied, but understanding whether the client prefers email or calls and in what sequence, you know, some clients prefer an email to give them a preview of the substance that's going to be discussed. Some clients prefer that you just call them. So being easy to work with and understanding your clients. The third tip, which is my own, is really to just have patience with yourself. I mean, none of these skills come overnight. They're definitely developed skills. But from the first phone call to the final deliverable, every interaction that you have with your clients, again, whether that's an actual client or a supervising attorney, is an opportunity to create client-centered experiences and help you move matters forward. Clients really are our most important resources, and so they should be handled with tact, uh, integrity, intelligence, and sometimes that certainly takes time, effort, and skill in knowing your audience, uh, being easy to work with, and giving yourself some grace and having some patience. Well, great, Latasha. Thank you so much for those great tips. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung at gmail.com and connect with me on social. I'm at Attorney DSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the section annual conference in Atlanta, April 19th through the 21st. The section annual conference is the premier event for litigators. It brings together top litigation professionals from across the U.S. to discuss timely legal issues and the latest in trial advocacy, litigation strategy, and case management. 
The 2023 Litigation Section Annual Conference provides a unique opportunity to learn and interact with in-house counsel, outside counsel, academics, government employees, and judges. And we're also going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Litigation Section with a special event at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. To find out more and for registration information, go to ambar.org slash SAC2023. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the Litigation Section's Audio Content Committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.